Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today is a special day for me because I get to interview Dr. Jeffrey Bland. I can't tell you how grateful I am to have the moment to sit down with Dr. Bland and pick his brain about all of the wonderful things that he thinks about on a day-to-day basis. Dr. Bland studied at the University of California in Irvine and obtained a bachelor's in biology before going on to the University of Oregon to get a degree in chemistry as a PhD. But that's just where it started. Over the remainder of Dr. Bland's career, he became one of the preeminent educators in the world of the new way of thinking about medicine. What Peter Atia calls 3.0 medicine, Jeffrey Bland was onto this in my mind a long time ago, looking at what are the upstream reasons we have disease? How should we be looking at the human physiology from a completely different upstream perspective? And it was an absolute pleasure the first time I met him and had the moment of sitting down and learning of all the ways he sees medicine that was differential from the way I was taught at the University of Arizona, I mean, University of um, Virginia and Emory. And he ushered in an entire new era of how to see and think about patients. He founded the Institute for Functional Medicine, wrote an amazing book called The Disease Delusion, and was one of the first podcasters with Functional Medicine Update. And the list goes on and on and on of all the great achievements that Dr. Bland has in his career. But really, what, sta- what he stands out for me above all is he is the preeminent educator of our time. And we're going to go through today a really incredibly deep, happy discussion about what is going on in the world of medicine and physiology. And so with that, I'm going to begin the conversation. Enjoy. Well, Dr. Bland, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. I know you're over there on the West Coast, and I so appreciate you taking the time to come and share your infinite wisdom with the audience. Well, first of all, thank you. Second of all, my wisdom is certainly far from infinite. Third, um, you're a great thought leader, and I believe that probably through the question and answer conversation we have will occur things that I never even thought about. So what better way to spend time? Thank you. Well, I look forward to it. So here we go. In 2008, so I'm going to give you a little backdrop to my story of understanding the world of Dr. Jeffrey Bland. In 2008, I had just come out of the Arizona Integrative Medicine Fellowship with Dr. Andy Weil and a good friend of mine, Kathy Kemper, and I were talking and she said to me, do you ever listen to Functional Medicine Update? And again, this was pre-podcast. And I said, no, I don't know Functional Medicine Update. She goes, well, you need to pick it up. So I did. And I got my first CD in the mail. And I remember sitting down and listening to it and being completely blown away by the way you sat down and talked to guests, mostly at the bench level, and tried to bring all of that data and information into a contextual platform that those of us clinicians and you know lay public could take and utilize. And I, I was hooked. And I'll tell you this, I picked up every CD from that day forward, even in, went, went into synthesis. And then since then, I've been following your career. So <laughs> you are probably the first podcaster that I know. And it's sort of fun to be now full circle to sit down now and have the opportunity to interview you for the guests that follow my show. So I want to, first of all, thank you. Second of all, I I was gifted by the ability to hear words like, you know, 
from Dr. Patrice Kani, right? So low level endotoxemia and Moshe Schiff talking about nature versus nurture. Randy Jurdle bringing us into epigenetics. Lesio Fasano, you know, brought me into the leaky gut. These are words that didn't enter the lexicon of my of my medical knowledge because they're not talked about at the institutions of halls of knowledge, University of Virginia and Emory, where I went, supposed to be where we learn all of this. And I wasn't learning it. And so I was super intrigued that you were sitting down as a PhD and basically coalescing all this information that was globally available and putting into a usable form for those of us who are sitting there seeing patients. And I can tell you that was, as you say, that was an that was one of those aha moments for me where I was like, okay, my, my life is never going to be the same. And that has been to this day, the same. Every time I have the opportunity to sit down and listen to you speak, it is again, another moment in time for, I go, okay, I'm learning another piece of the next iteration of my medical existence. And I know Peter Atia talks about medicine 3.0. You were onto this 30 plus years ago. I don't know what, oh, you were on your prime medicine 5.0, but I'm going to segue you now. You said in your book, Disease Delusion, that we need to move beyond asking what drug will treat the symptoms and instead ask what mechanism creates altered neurochemical or neurobiological function or frankly, systemic physiological change. This statement truly encapsulates my shift from medical training that Emory and UVA's version of reductionist medicine offered to the new eyes wide open version of functional medicine where the upstream biochemical processes and their dysfunction are at the center of therapeutic understandings with our patients instead of the drug for symptom reality of the past. So as that is a backdrop, sort of give the listeners an idea how you, a brilliant scientist working at the PhD bench level, formed an entirely new way of seeing medicine without being a clinician, an MD. And, and I put you on the highest pedestal that I technically have of sharing information for us MDs, naturopaths, and and alike. So how did that come to be? Well, thank you, Chris. That's, um, you just gave me a big gift and I receive it with great respect and appreciation. Um, so, you know, we're all seekers, hopefully. We're all hopefully lifelong learners. Um, my particular approach, according to what my mother told me uh, from her early memories of my being as a child, was that I was always asking why. I was never comfortable with simple answers, and it was driving my parents crazy, but they managed it well, I thought, uh, and continued to say there were no barriers to learning, and the answers were out there, go find them. And so that was the environment that I grew up in. It was a very positive reinforcing environment. My sister and I both, I think, um, enjoyed. And as I've grown older now, I'm 77 now, I really look back and, and recognize how fortunate I was to be in that environment as a, as a child, because it was really uh, always stimulation of learning and, and new ideas. And there was never in, well, why do you ask that? Or that's not a good question or you're wasting your time or whatever. So that guided me, I think, along along the road. And what for me was um, starting in probably high school, maybe even in middle school, a question of why do people got sick. And I started studying infectious disease uh, early on. And that seemed to be really a fairly nice uh, 
simple to understand, at least in, at that age, um, explanation of how people got sick. There were these outside forces called bugs, microbes, that somehow attacked our body and got a foothold and took over and made us sick. Okay, well, that was um, pretty good from an experiential level because I got colds when I was young and I got sore throats and so forth. So it all seemed to work. But as I, um, as I got into later school and started to learn a bit more about biology and about physiology and so forth, um, by the time I got to high school, that, that explanation seemed fairly incomplete as to why people got ill. So then I started asking, well, you know, all my friends thought that if it couldn't be accounted for as it relates to getting sick from an infectious bug, then it must be because of your genes that you just were born into some kind of a family inheritance that was going to give you something, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, dementia, whatever the du jour condition was, that was a result of your genes. And you didn't fill, fill on an application card. You just got the luck of the draw. Some people got better luck than others. And that was the next explanation. But as I studied um, genetics, and, and uh, now I'm speaking about the 60s when I started going to college, um, the birthing of the era of molecular biology was just starting and molecular genetics. And so as I was starting to learn about Watson and Crick and the whole nature of the genetic code, that model of strict genetic disease didn't seem to be an explanation for everything either, because we certainly did have these monogenetic uh inborn errors of metabolism, those diseases like Tay-Sachs, Gaucher's, Febreze, sickle cell anemia, and so forth. Um, but there were many, many people who got sick that didn't have those monogenetic disorders, and they also weren't sick because they were infectious. So what's the other explanation? <laughs> so I was still on this, on this search. And it was through that search that somewhere later in um, probably my second year of college, that I hit on this paper that appeared in Science Magazine in 1949, authored by Pauling and Atano. And uh, that article, which I just happened onto as if there is, I, I, as I grow older, I'm not sure how much is it happenstance. I think a lot of it is guided by the way we're thinking or acting. But anyway, I fell onto this article in Science 1949. It was, it was entitled Sickle Cell Disease the first molecular disease. And so I thought, molecular disease? What's a molecular disease? That's that's a new concept for me. And so when I got into really looking at that work more carefully, it led me into study more, much more deeply Linus Pauling. And to make a long story as short as I can, that led me ultimately to meeting Linus Pauling I ultimately became a professor in the um, in 1970. I was a, uh, became an assistant professor of chemistry and environmental science at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, and I had an opportunity then to be uh, as a young professor in charge of the faculty lecture program, which turned out to be perfect for my probing mind, because I had a small budget that allowed me to introduce and invite people that I thought were thought leaders to the university to speak to the faculty and students. And I had uh, some really remarkable experiences. Often these people stayed in my home, which was even more cool. 
Um, and one of those people was Linus Pauling. And so I developed a personal um, association with him. I was doing at that point some research with my first graduate student, uh, gentleman by the name of Philip Matson, who went on ultimately to go to John Hopkins and become a faculty there and now is retired. Um, but we uh, did work on vitamin E. And Pauling was very interested in our work. We published a few papers in the early 70s. And that led really to a very, very strong association with him uh, and his and his wife, Eva Helen's way of thinking about how to reduce human suffering through the understanding of how genes interface with the environment and give rise to these quote, molecular disorders that we call dysfunctions. So from that, it ultimately took me into saying, okay, then we need a third category. Uh, I wasn't the first person to say this, by the way, I was just appropriating other people's knowledge, uh, going from infectious disease to genetic metabolism diseases into functional disorders of how genes are interacting and communicating with the environment. And that has been my work since 1981 to today. It's all around that model. Yeah. And and the model, frankly, in this day and age is the only way we should be looking at it in medicine, in my mind, again, after seeing the disparate ways that medicine is being taught, I think your model is the one that makes the most sense. So let's go back in time. So humans have been on this planet for a long time. You know, if you go back fire around a million years and then, you know, animal husbandry kicking in, farming kicking in, you know, so for most of human existence, we've had a relatively similar lifestyle, i.e. exposure to the environment was, you know, natural in most situations until, you know, you can say maybe the industrial revolution was a big change. You know, farming was clearly a big change, but something's dramatically happened. So, Go back as far as you want to go and start giving us an understanding of to where we have gone from a society that is mostly challenged by infectious disease and microbes and accidents, you know, being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, falling off a cliff, drowning because you don't know how to swim, to that's nothing to the degree of disease that we see now. And mostly what we're seeing now is a disease of chronic living, aging, or secondarily toxicity, which is my you know, most passion in environmental space to look into with mothers and their children. And and I think those two are now taking the bulk work, bulwark of my thought process around why we're sick now. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important question. Uh, so to say the obvious, <laughs> um, mean average life expectancy back in the early hominid period was relative to today very short, probably at most half of the mean average life expectancy of a person who is born today, if they are fortunate to live in a, a, a society that has some control over the environment. Um, and as you said, the, the major cause of death uh, was things that were impairing or in, in, in threatening uh, the ability of this metastable organism called the human that doesn't have a large litter size, doesn't have protective coloration, is not that strong for body mass, and is very dependent upon a fairly rich source of calories in order to fuel this aerobic metabolism that allows it to be a warm-blooded warm, uh, warm animal and keep its body temperature constant. 
And there are so many factors that can steal those things and, and cause the uh, dysfunction that we didn't live that long. Now, interestingly enough, and this is kind of a part of my learning, if we look at the genotype, or at least the purported genotype of our earliest ancestors, um, they had a very, very interesting, apparently immune genotype. They had very high levels of what is called apolipoprotein E4. Now, apolipo-E4 today is considered like, by some, a death gene <laughs> because it codes for increasing prevalence of Alzheimer's and of um, breast and prostate cancer, endometrial cancer uh, in women. And so you say, well, gee whiz, why did we have such high levels of apolipo-E4, pre uh, presumably, in our early hominid ancestors? And it turns out that that genotype imparts a characteristic to our immune system that makes it very, very sensitive to pro-inflammatory insults. The immune system is hypervigilant. It goes very rapidly into an inflammatory state. Now, if you don't have emergency rooms, you don't have antibiotics, and you don't have immune active drugs, then you better have, if you want to survive against an infection in an uncontrolled environment, you better have some really hypervigilant immune system activity. So the ApoE4 allele may have been selected for early on to help us protect ourselves against the major loss of life, um, knowing that if you died of an infection before your reproductive age, you weren't going to do much good to the future. So what happened over time, however, it's a little race against the two factors of how these genes ultimately get selected for over time. Uh, those individuals who need the E4, Epsilon4 type uh, may retain that in their genotype, and others, uh, it may be dysfunctional for them, and, and people who don't carry that gene in a pr more protected environment may have selective advantage because they can live longer, and they can avoid the secondary risk of these other things, like vascular disease or dementia or cancer. So now we trade off one protective effect against another based upon the environment and the history of the human species in that environment. So now we don't want to have an ApoE4 allele, or at least double allele. Uh, we want an ApoE2 or 3, um, ApoE2 or 3. This, to me, is an example of genetic drift that associates itself with environmental pressure. Now, we're probably engaging environmental drift right now with all the toxins and the stuff in our environment, the uh, highly you know, processed diets are probably doing some genetic drift. The problem is that the rate of change of the environment is probably much greater than you can achieve by genetic drift for improving functional outcome. So what we start seeing are these epidemics of late, later age chronic disease that probably don't occur in 15-year-olds, but do occur in 45-year-olds. Well, if the mean average life expectancy was 44, you probably didn't worry about it 45 on. But if the mean average life expectancy you're hoping to be a century, then you better really worry about it and the factors that contribute to that. So I think that our genes are not catching up with their genetic drift, with our change in the environment to give us a um, selective adaptation or uh, selective um, uh, genomic resistance to all the stuff we're throwing at. I haven't talked about stress. I haven't talked about isolation. Uh, loneliness as well as, I mean, all these factors that we're dealing with simultaneously. 
let's 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 pull on that lever a little more. I was actually just sitting here looking up. I couldn't remember his name, but John Casteline has yeah. been doing a bunch of work with HDL. And and so if we're going to sit and think about this from the perspective of cardiovascular disease, which is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse right now, your point is very well taken. Now that we're learning that these genes were hugely advantageous during a period of time when your major life risk was birthing a child and suffering a bacterial infection as a mother or being cut by a sword. And so a bacterial infection would take you out. And it's very clear now that HDL, high density lipoprotein was thought to be good cholesterol. And clearly all the studies with the drugs raising HDL did not show that to be any, any benefit. And now we're learning that it's actually not the HDL particle number so much as the function of the actual HDL particle that's the big key. And John Casteline was talking to the point that the function to some extent of HDL is actually bacterial endotoxin clearance. And so I think to your point, that's so well taken. We think of all these genes as net negatives, but they're not net negatives in the sense of the history of the humanity over millions of years. They're only a net negative now because, and I want you to segue here now, we've changed something drastically in the last hundred years that has made us susceptible to our genes no longer being functional, i.e. the polar bear in the desert. We're sitting here now with white, white light skin and I'm sitting in you know North Carolina in, in Charlotte area, which is triply Africa. The, the skin texture of somebody who lived here for millions of years was not Northern European. So we have ourselves sitting in a situation where our skin is not supposed to be sitting in a sunlight that we have. So we are genetically mismatched for the environment we find ourselves in. So run on that lever a little bit, because you did go down the APOE side. Most of the genes that we think of from the cardiovascular side were protective, and now they're not. Why? Yeah, I think you chose a really uh, a great example, um, the HDL example. So HDL is different than any of the other lipoproteins, as you already indicated, in that it is the lipoprotein and has the most complex heterogeneity of proteins that make it up. The other um, lipoproteins, uh, apolipoproteins, are fairly simple in uh, APOA, APOB uh, construction. The HDL has 44 different proteins, I believe, as in my last reading, maybe it's more now, uh, that make it up. And those include things like myeloperoxidase and peroxidase. Uh, these are very, very interesting functional proteins that involve with environmental protection and involve with detoxification process. And so this uh, HDL, uh, depending upon your genotype of your HDL, uh, can have a very, very different uh, effect on how you're protected against things that other people are exposed to. Now, let, let's take that just for a second and talk about the most dominant rising tide of chronic illness in our society today, I believe, which is uh, what we call autoimmune disease. Now, histor historically, or let's call it traditionally in medicine, I'm sorry, I'm sounding like a lecturer here. I'm just trying to provide a little bit of insight. Um, go, go, go. I the, love it. <laughs> the, the, there are at least 88 different autoimmune diseases in the uh, diagnostic code book. And then there are variants of those 88. So it's quite a rich array of different names that have different reimbursement codes for their diagnosis that are covered by different physicians that fall within certain subspecialties. It can range from endocrine to rheumatology to gastroenterology to neurology, uh, cardiology. So there, there, it cuts across many, many different uh, subspecialties of medicine, uh, these, these autoimmune diseases. I didn't talk about allergy, obviously, in there as well. 
Um, and so we we start thinking about why are we seeing such a a plethora of these autoimmune diseases? Oh, I forgot dermatology. That needs to be in there too. And, and then we start looking at advertisements on multimedia, on TV. And we are just bombarded now with advertisements from the uh, pharmaceutical industries on these drugs that treat autoimmune diseases of all these different types. And so you start saying, well, is it's just an, an unmet market need or are they actually increasing in prevalence? And probably a combination of both, but we are seeing them greatly increase in prevalence, thyroiditis and multiple sclerosis and, and atopia in children. And you might even throw certain forms of autistic disorders into the autoimmune family as well. So when we start thinking about this and ask the question why, our genes didn't change, presumably that much over the last 30 years. What did change, however, is the environment in which the genes were being exposed. And when the genes are being exposed to this altered environment, they have two options. One option is to modify how they're expressed into how we look, act, and behave. That's called epigenetics. The other is just to take the brunt into the face and whatever the outcome is, we call it the autoimmune disease. Now, could it be that the immune systems of today, that people who have autoimmune disease are really the yellow canaries of people that carry the genes from before their ancestors that may be imparted to them selective advantage in the environment they were exposed to that only becomes disadvantageous now that those same genes are being exposed in this new environment for which they're not selected. And in fact, there is good literature to support that model, that people with autoimmune disease don't have defective immune systems, they have hypervigilant immune systems that are not just becoming allergic to themselves. That's ridiculous to say that you wake up some morning and you, your immune system doesn't like you anymore and it becomes allergic to you. That's ridiculous. Right. What you become allergic to is you that is no longer you. Your body has become transformed by radiation, by chemicals, by stress, by things that wash over your, your body and alter the function of these molecules so your immune system, if it's hypervigilant, does the job it's supposed to do. It says, oh, foreigner on board, I better get rid of it. Now we call that a response to double-stranded DNA. But it's not double-stranded native DNA, it's transformed DNA that's undergone mutational injury. And so now your immune system is doing actually what it should do. Unfortunately, it's doing it at such a level that causes symptoms because other people with less hypervigilant immune systems are not getting that problem. So I think what happens contextually, if you talk about my book, Disease Delusion, the reason I chose that title, we have diseases, certainly they're codified symbol systems based upon symptom profiles that allows us comfort that we know what we're doing. But when it comes right down to it, if you look at any one of those diseases, they express themselves in multiple ways in different individuals with sometimes very different etiologies. We just classify them together because they have similar presentations into the phenotype. And they may have much, much different responses as it relates to the cellular biological response. This is, by the way, the birthing of precision cancer therapy based on that whole model. And so we're witnessing kind of an abandoning a little bit of the traditional view that you're defective if you get a disease 
And if you don't get a disease, it means that you have really galvanized genes against abuse versus the opposite of say, genes are not good or bad. They're pluripotential that respond to the environment in which you live. And what you need to do is match your genes with the environment to get optimal outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, based on that knowledge, the environment would be something that we can control. And well, frankly, we can control some of it, but there's parts that we cannot control. And that in lies the difficulty in stemming the tide of what we're seeing. So Randy Jertle and I were talking two weeks ago about the imprintome and how there's a ICR, a, a you know, imprintome control region that in a, a, a famine state, a mother exposed to a famine state, the children have a much higher incidence of developing schizophrenia. But that same ICR locus in a fed state would then flip into the opposite spectrum of autism spectrum disorder. And so I start to think about that from the, the perspective that you're saying, okay, well, we have you know, controllable, we have mutable, we have you know, genes that are hardwired. And all of this is all due to the exposome. No matter how you slice it, the exposome is the major player that can be leveraged to alter the outcome in a beneficial way or in an in a negative way. And I think when I think of autism, and you sort of hinted to the autoimmunity side, I think Ramirez Celis's work showed that fully 20% of the kids she looked at had antibodies against the parts of the brain that lead to the phenotype that we see of as ASD in kids. Some of these spectrum disorders, um, you know, the, the, the speech problems, the repetitive behaviors, the, 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 the difficulties that, that, that arise later in their neurodiversity. So we're seeing now what, one in 22 in California, one in 35 in other states. To your point, this isn't a hardwired genetic code drift. This is a software input change that's leading to what we're seeing. Do you have an idea? Because again, I have my ideas. Do you have an idea of what's the biggest lever that is being pulled on negatively that's leading to this rise over the last 50 years? I know we can go far back and look at, you know, lack of exposure to in, uh, parasites and, 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 and bugs that lead to different immune tolerance. But what do you think is the major player if you have that idea in your head? Huh. Um. You know, I think, I don't want to skirt the question because it's a really great question. But because we live in an extraordinarily complex multifactorial environment in which we didn't hold one variable constant and then or everything constant and change one variable, we, we have all these things happening post-industrial revolution simultaneously. Right. Um, that it's really very, very hard for me to pinpoint um, a major driver. Because if you start looking at the synergy, it, it reminds you a little bit of the studies that have been done on environmental toxicology. We study toxicology uh, at first from a strict kind of LD50 dose. How much did it take to kill somebody? And then we moved into much more finer understandings of how much of exposure to something what parts per million led to them to have a functional immune or neurological change that's leading to neuro and, and, um, uh, and immune toxicology, which is a much more finer imprint of the uh, source of uh, changes in a person. But after we then did that one chemical at a time, then we started to add one with another and one with two more and then one with three more. 
And we found out that all the, the uni, uh, univariant assumptions that we made with one at a time were not operative when we added multiple at a time. We got all these other effects, generally multiple effects across multiple systems that were not anticipated. So it's very hard for me to pinpoint a driver that would be universal to all individuals. But I do believe that there are specific sociobiological factors that we can define that group together to increase the relative risk. And the nice thing about understanding it from that complexion is that most of these are reducible, they're modifiable, they're executable if you can identify them. So that's kind of how I approach it uh, from a kind of a philosophical perspective. Yeah, and I agree. And I, I guess I may have misasked the question correctly then. The, the, the systems biology is very clear. I think Leslie Stone's work, I think a bunch of uh, Elizabeth Mumper's work, I think we've sort of answered the question on it's not a single environmental stimulus driving the disease. I, I, it, what I was sort of driving at, I think a little bit more was what do you think is the major player? Again, and I, I, my bias, maybe that's my bias speaking. My bias is nutrition is the biggest driver and there, and overnutrition primarily. And I'm thinking, you know, when I look at some of the work of, of Rick Johnson and the uricase mutation and how that's coming to play with preeclampsia and how preeclampsia and premature delivery is a 4X risk of autism. So I'm starting to... Uh, put these differential loci together in a systems biology way. But if there's one lever, because again, I'm, I'm starting to think of from the clinician's mind, what can we leverage for the mother as best as we can? Which lever can we pull on the hardest to have the best outcome, knowing that we're not hitting all 43 or 65 or 22 holes in the dike that are leading to the disease? But is there one big lever that's doing the most damage. And maybe that was a question I was more asking. I agree with the entirely systems biology, hundred percent, but do you think there's one lever or is that still too reductionist? Well, one lever is not one lever <laughs> because quite honestly, when you talk about diet and food, this is a complex matrix with literally tens of thousands of different information molecules that are influencing neuroimmune function. Plus, right. when we eat, how we eat, with who we eat, how we are prepared to eat, how is our digestive system working, what is the gut microbiome that relates to our communication with our immune system, all of those are related to your question around, or your point around food. Right. So yes, we could put it around food with a capital F, but under that are lots of little Fs that have multiple inputs into that system, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree wholeheartedly. And one of the things I would love to see happen in, at least in the the perinatal and pregnancy space is getting CGMs on pregnant women from the get-go so that they have a recognition of what their blood sugar response is real time. Because again, to your point, can we do microbiome analysis on every mother? Can we do all the you know organic uh, possibilities for um, healthy food without the toxins in it? These are hard levers to do for everybody, but is there a possibility that we could find a way to at least have one big upstream lever pulled on? And so that again, that's why I keep trying to reduce it because I'm always thinking of the way of what's the best thing we can do that's not the full system that leads to the best possibility of an outcome in modern society, because my practice is 70% Medicaid. So it's a much harder play to ask for knowing all of those inputs antecedently, maybe is that's the best way I'm trying to understand it. 
Well, I, I think you're, you and I are coming from the exact same position. Ultimately, this translates itself down into what can we do, right. and what what will be what will a person actually take charge of and be responsible for once we've given them a suggestion, right? <laughs> and uh, it's different when you're doing emergency medicine and you've got um, intubation and and, and IV uh, line that you can give them stuff and they will do it whether you want to, you're going to do it whether they want to or not. It, it's very much different when you're in an ambulatory situation and you're having persons select whether they're going to stay with your suggestions. And so they have. my feeling is that most people need to get some kind of fairly rapid return on the investment of doing something different to maintain their compliance. Now, diet is a very interesting way of approaching it because every it's a common feature that everybody's eaten at least some time. So it's a, it's a shared common experience. And we know that food does have an effect on feeling, on felt state. There's no question. So if a person has had a long-term chronic pain, headaches, digestive dysfunction, diarrhea, constipation, I mean, we could go down the list, headaches, um, and they change their diet, and those things are ameliorated or significantly reduced in severity, then it kind of stimulates compliance and adherence where the person becomes the master of their own universe. Um, so I I agree with you that food is a is a very important leverageable and executable um, input, and if you can get a father and mother to eat differently, because it's going to produce a variable of value to them, then the trade off to their children can be, or the the feedback to their children can be quite considerable, either preconceptionally or postconceptionally. So this this is this moves the whole system in the right direction. With that said, as it relates to what we call autism, my view is that we have to be very careful not to stigmatize children with that term just because they have some probing minds and they are attention disordered and they're distracted because some of the most brilliant individuals that we have in society are individuals that carry those characteristics and our world would not be as good as it is in the absence of them being here. So I think we have to be very cautious not to medicalize this so much that it stigmatizes individuals who are just uniquely different, but still highly functional, maybe even super functional in some respects and gifted. So it's a complex domain that I believe when we start giving names to things. Yeah, and I, I would agree. I think there's been a, a, a pretty consistent drumbeat, at least in pediatrics, to not medicalize most of these terms to that point, ADHD, attention. I mean, you know, half of my partners are ADHD or probably more than 70% of them. And I'm, I'm a classic, I'm, I'm the picture that's in the textbook on ADHD. So I, I totally agree and I think the the bigger question, you know, for society is always going to be, no matter what the disease is, stigmatization is never functional. It is always a net negative because then you're taking a piece away from the person's sense of self, which is a, a, a negative lean on the immune system, which then leads to dysfunctional downregulation of, of things we want to be functional. So I, I hear your point loud and clear. I think the audience hears that loud and clear as well. And, and so 
you know, we start to look at this at the center of the whole issue, right? So if we go back anthropologically, you sort of hit on this earlier that the main function of the immune system was surveillance. So for me, genes are there for two reasons, procreation, survival. I think the immune system's main function is survival. Procreation clearly for mom, the immune system works to help baby stay alive. If it shifts to a, you know, a TH1 type, it aborts the child for very good reasons usually. But the 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 functionality of the system as we're living more and more in this industrial age that puts a big burden from an exposome perspective on the immune system, we now lead to this term that you've used many, many times and that is the center of many of my whiteboards, inflammation. And inflammation, you know, is now the new buzzword, even in traditional allopathic circles, because what most of the drugs we're using reduced down to what they're actually functionally doing. They're trying to block inflammation, whether it's steroids, whether it's all these uh, monoclonal antibody drugs. I mean, so help the audience understand why this is all the center of the environment for disease. Well, Chris, I, I first want to comment on something you said, and I'll, I'll attach it to this inflammation question. And, and this may be a controversy that you want to take a contrary opinion. I think the concept of the selfish gene is full, uh, is fallacious. I think if, if we believe that the gene is just there as a universal replicator, and that's all we are as a host for replication, I think we have missed the whole nature of the story of life. I think the genes are much more than just a replicator. I, th I think the genes hold information about the integrity of a species as it relates to its um, success beyond its replication rate. And I know this is a big debate in the literature. Um, it, it's been uh, the, the, uh, the ground and the, the, the reason for probably thousands of conferences and discussions but I, I will not travel through this planet believing the selfish gene is the explanation for the only role that genes play is replication, the universal replicator. And so how uh, does that relate then to your question on inflammation? So let me before just say, you, Before you go there, are they mutually exclusive though? Because to me, I think I don't see a huge distinction between the two. I think if the gene holds the history of the entire species over time and clearly epigenetically the marks are carried multiple generations that in and of itself is a way for the species to keep itself alive and functional and, okay, but and you're, inter you're introducing a very different concept now you're you're cheating the game okay the game the game until introduced what you just said was introduced in the discussion was all around the primacy of the double helix okay in its native form the, got it the, the genetic code and we just were here to play out until we could give a sperm to an egg and allow the species to have a next generation that was the got whole it. reason okay and i don't believe that that's true i would agree with you then for the reasons that you just described by the way yeah, yeah but i can yeah. tell okay. you there is it's a huge body of debate within the field just okay. like we're seeing with sapolsky's recent book on free will that's yeah. another huge debate, which I have opinion on as well, uh, because I think that ties to the same model that you're describing, which is this epigenomic model. If we if we had no free will, then we couldn't modulate the epigenome in such a way as to create an outcome in our lives that was different than the genes themselves. Right. 
and we can select to mark our genes in certain ways, either adversely or advantageously. So that's a whole nother topic is free will versus determinism. So would love to go down that some other day. And I would tend to lean on, on your side. I think free will, I was, was at the recent paper that just came out where they gave, and again, this is sort of a slightly off, off topic, but they gave uh, a, a group of, of individuals, a different dose of nicotine and the doses of nicotine were based on um, a, the study was said they were getting three different doses, high, medium, and low, but all the, 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 patients that received it received the exact same dose, but they were told they got three different doses. So by definition, you would think pharmacologically, their response would be as the pharmacological intervention was given, but the case did not be, did not come out at all. It was the actual mental side of how that played out free will to your point that showed a complete differential as if they were getting the high, low and medium dose. So I think as the studies continue to bear this out, I think you're going to be spot on that it is free will, not deterministic. So let's go to inflammation now. Uh, this might appear to be a leap of abstraction, but I think we can make a segue over there. So inflammation is a term that is, uh, like so often in biology, been stigmatized with a connotation, in this case, negative. And um, it's interesting. I always find it fascinating when biological concepts are uh, acculturated, they often get a value proposition associated with them, when really in the biology, they're value-free. So there are, there are really no processes in the human body that are bad or good. They're processes. Right. And, and then we play them out as to how we want to define them. So inflammation is a process. And it's a very, very important process for the reasons you, you described earlier. It's an important process for the protection against infection. It's also uh, recycles uh, dead tissue and allows us to reform ourselves. Um, that we have to do unless we live in some kind of a chamber where we're never exposed to anything. We're injured over the course of life. We have to regenerate our cells and tissues, and we do so by a process that engages inflammation. Uh, and so this, this concept that inflammation is bad is fallacious. It is a process that has to be controlled. That's where Chinese medicine has a kind of a mechanistic advantage, talking about yin and yang, balance points. And and these functional determinants that you go from one, it's like a slider scale, a Likert scale, from one side to the other, and you want to be somewhere in the middle with resilience. So inflammation is not a bad thing. It's when it is imbalanced with the ability to be modulated and controlled at the point of need. And inflammation is not generic. It has many different forms and textures in which it's presented within different cells and different tissues and different organs and organ systems. So if you want to just go in and say, I'm just going to block inflammation, well, you're going to be in bad shape because you're going to get opportunistic infections. You're going to have a lot of funny things growing on your body, and it's not going to be a good outcome. So this discussion of inflammation has gone off the rails, I think. The, constru the construct that we are imbalanced in our inflammatory regulation through the immune system is absolutely correct. That's this inflammaging um, term. But the concept that inflammation in and of itself is bad is equally fallacious. And so it's all about balance and functional regulation. Homeostatic control or homeodynamic regulation is a term I would prefer to use because it's a very dynamic process. It's not homeostatic, it's homeodynamic. 
And I think this gets to the point of many of the biological systems that we talk about. And if you just think about the pharmacological system and toxicological system, it used to be there was a dose and that was responsive or there's a toxic dose. There was no low, high, nothing. And then hormesis came out and all these things. And so I think to the reality that a human biological system is responsive at all different levels. And to your point, again, the body wants to be in balance. That's why we have a pH of X, 7.36 or four that we want to stay in. And if we don't, the body works really hard to keep it there. And if we keep pushing on a lever that forces it in the wrong direction, it's going to start to decay over time. And I think that's where as modern society starts to learn the term inflammaging, what they're really, to me, what they're really learning is that the body is to some extent rusting faster than it should. It's oxidizing faster than it should. It's changing faster than it should because we're not helping the inflammation process stay within the balance structure that we would want to happen. And this happens in every, um, you know, every biological system on the planet. And so okay, I, just, I, a, just a second. You said two things there that are, I think, really worth um, exclamation point underline. Let's talk about pH for a second. So what happens to uh, the body's pH if a person goes on a long-term ketogenic diet? I would assume it starts to get a little bit more acidic. That's exactly right. It's a new homeostatic level. And now we're saying that that's desirable. Is it really desirable? Or is it desirable for certain types of phenotypic outcomes? See, that this is where these models that we learned are kind of limiting. Right. They're, they're, and I think we need to be very cautious about how we think of these built-in uh, defined structures. Like, uh, well, uh, your blood glucose should be, it used to be 100 milligram per deciliter. That would be a good place. But now people are saying, no, maybe it's better if it's uh, 75 milligram per deciliter with an A1C right. of 4.3. I mean, right. there are different variations on a theme. Now, let me go from there to th this concept of, of inflammation and, and um, inflammaging. So we just finished a clinical trial. I'm pretty proud of it. It was a preliminary short-term, small-size pilot trial, 50 human beings, that we, um, using a special Lumina chip, that has 850,000 CPG sites on it, so we can measure sites of epigenetic uh, imprinting. Uh, we we measured at time zero. Um, these are presumably healthy men and women, average age uh, 52. We measured their uh, CPG sites, in other words, their epigenome uh, using this tool to begin with in immune cells uh, because we were using uh, white blood cell concentrates. We then put them onto a dietary program for only 90 days that was very, very highly enriched with a family, a portfolio of polyphenols associated with an ancient 4,000-year-old plant called Himalayan tartary buckwheat. It's one of the two oldest cultivated food plants in the world, the other being millet in, in India. And, uh, and we asked the question, did it have any effect on the epigenetic imprinting of their immune cells? Well, the interesting outcome of the study, and we just uh, are submitting this for publication, so you're getting kind of the preprint news, is that in general, it did not affect statistically significantly the methylation or ep uh, epigenetic pattern of the immune system across the board of these 50 individuals. But if you segmented the data set, so look at those individuals who started off 
with an epigenetic immune age greater than their birthdays, greater than their chronological age. So these are people that were more than one standard deviation older in their immune systems than their age and birthdays. They had a highly statistically significant reduction in their immune age after intervention. Now you're going to ask me the question, what happens with those people that started off with a much lower immune age than their chronological age when you put them on the program? Did it go even lower? And the answer is no. It went up to a set point that was the same place that the old people went down to. It normalized immune age. So hmm. maybe we have this whole concept of age perverted. Wrong. It's functional resilience that we're measuring, not age. This is a pretty radical concept, by the way. It's flying in the face of hundreds of investigators right. in this concept of age. I think age is a proxy for a function of the resilience of the individual. Hmm. That is super, super fascinating. Tartary buckwheat is a, so you, you could almost call it a, uh, a yin and yang modifier of yeah. the immune system of the immune aging again, which comes back to the, to the point of what does the body want to find? It wants to find balance and you're yeah. giving it the inputs that allow it to find balance. And I think of this in how many ways, I mean, you know, one of the beauties of doing this podcast that I know you so enjoyed over your years of, of functional medicine update and synthesis is you hear from disparate minds from all the different fields and you get to sit in the center and start to coalesce all the ide ideas together. And you see that they all seem to come back to the same spot and they keep pushing on these similar levers, these similar themes. And to this point, it is this homeostatic desire of the body to be where it's supposed to be. And and that that's just, I, I find that exceedingly fascinating. And I can't wait to see more of that uh, of your research come out. So this becomes more mainstream understanding, because again, I think one of the biggest problems in modern medicine right now is that we are spending all of our time treating disease after it shows up and almost no time preventing disease before it happens. And so the bulk of the expense is coming after physiology is already somewhat broken to the point that it's very hard to reverse type one diabetes being a classic example. Once you're type one diabetic, you're on insulin for life in general. So why can't we get up a stream when an anti-islet cell antibody starts to show itself six years early and then maybe try and mitigate the reasons as to the why that antibody formed in the first place. And I don't think medicine is even remotely near that. I get entirely frustrated. And I know you probably have over your career as well, that you send a patient to endocrinology with normal TSH, normal free T4, normal labs, but oh, by the way, they have antithyroid peroxidase and, and antibody. And they're like, well, we'll see them in 10 years. Whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa wait a second. Like, and so, yeah, yeah I, I, Dr. Bland, I think that's that's the piece that I don't think is getting out into modern society enough. You know, I know in the functional medicine world it is, um, but it's not making it to the places where the majority of patients still are. And and for me, I think that's a that's a, a it's a crying shame of medicine and and modern media. I think if any disease showed that more than anything, I think the COVID pandemic really screamed loud and clear that our system doesn't have an awareness around the why. You know, here we have four diseases driving most deaths with uh, a SARS-2 infection. We have diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, and, and being overweight, being associated with almost 98 of every 100 deaths, but nobody's talking about the major antecedent reasons as to why those four diseases exist, which to your point, 
there's multiple levers, but the biggest of which are toxin exposure, sloth and, and food. And yeah. all the articles are about why didn't you mask? Why didn't you socially distance to those two, of which are not really healthy for humans and then vaccinate. And, and I, 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 I wonder why modern journalism hasn't had the awareness to look for these things. You published an amazing paper. Um, I, I think you're on that paper with, with, um, with, uh, Sam Yannick and 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 the team on COVID way back when that that mm-hmm. paper was phenomenal. Yet I didn't hear anybody pick that up in you know the lay public. Why do you think there's such a massive disconnect between your work and the work of many of the co- our colleagues and you know the 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 modern media? I mean, just go there because you know we know the you know the, some of the institutions are gaining ground now with this knowledge, but. You know, I, I remember distinctly a good friend of mine was a pediatric gastroenterologist, and I learned from Jerry Mullen back in 08 microbiome. And it was 2015 before Nespagam started talking about the microbiome. That's somewhat, you know, it, it almost begs, I, I don't really understand. <laughs> oh, it's so wonderful for you to me- mention Jerry Mullen. It takes me back. So, my first seminar series I ever gave for physicians as when I was a professor at the time was 1976. And one of my students in that, it was called the Chicago six-week program. I did six weekends in Chicago. One of my students in that course was a medical student, Jerry Mullen, 1976. No yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. And we were, to, we were started talking about these things back in that period of time. So you know, it, it's really fascinating for me to kind of watch how this whole field of a body of knowledge has evolved through people brilliant like you, putting things together, being a little bit of um, anti-establishment, pushing back against covenants that we had to pass tests and we had to recite on, on demand. Um, but I think what is happening is that we are in a triage of learning. Uh, if you think of a triage of learning, the first thing you learn are the most simple things that will have the biggest effects that are yes or no, true or false, black and white. That's the first level of learning. Because if you don't learn that, you probably don't survive. Then, then like, uh, look a certain direction when you cross the street or you can get run over. Um, then, then the next level of learning is how you start to put two or three things together to solve a problem. It's a more complex problem. So you learn how to use a checkbook along with the money that you make by whatever your professional activities are with how you're going to spend your money. And now you start to recognize how to manage your personal economics or finances. So that becomes another level of learning. It's it's more complex. But then the next level is to take those skills that you've learned at, at triage learning step one and two and to convert them into level three, which is to ask the question about how can I use these processes to understand things that I don't even know anything about yet, so that when I am exposed, I will come up with an answer that I may need if I want to live to be 100. Now, there are many philosophers that have written on this topic. There's a wonderful book called The Fabric of Reality that discusses this, in which there's a chapter about medicine in which the author says that the future of medicine is to understand the mechanisms of the human body and its resilience at such a level that you can predict the outcome of therapies in an individual before they're ever done. 
that's really scientific medicine. And that's where we're going to use maybe now the extracorporeal brain of AI, I'm not sure, to create solutions to problems that we didn't even know were problems, but we had answers to. <laughs> right. Right. And so that's what we're that's what we're grappling with right now. That 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 level three thinking. And most of our schooling only takes us up to level two thinking. Mm -hmm. It's wrote, and in fact, you, you, I'm sure you know this, there have been articles published on what does it take to be a successful medical student uh, in, in America. Uh, I recall an article actually in the Journal of Medical Education published in the 80s on this, and they said there are three things. Number one, you have to have an IQ of about 100 or better. Number two, you have to be able to memorize. And number three, you have to be able to reproduce from memory, things that make other people think you're okay. Those are the three things that make you a successful medical student. And um, are those the skills that you need to be in this world of today, successful in managing health and individuals? Uh, no. I, they, I don't think that's the full list. Yeah. Yeah. And I could tell you, I train medical students um, from a university in North Carolina here, and I'm amazed how often these young people haven't been trained to think. And I, I mean, no disrespect to them so much as I, it's a bit frustrating that the folks that are teaching them are still teaching them to memorize. And so we do monthly didactics to sit down and actually just go through a thought process of how a disease develops and, and make them break down all the way through the cycle from beginning to end. And one of the examples I always use is the, the story of you know, cadmium and how cadmium from cigarette smoke can turn on anti-CCP and what is anti-CCP? And they're all like, well, it's the biomarker of rheumatoid arthritis, but what is it? And no idea. And I'm like, yes, welcome to what I learned in med school. ANA was just a biomarker. I had no idea what ANA was. And so the whole thought process around training folks to actually think to be the next generation of onion peelers is essentially what I'm trying to do in my local microcosmic world and and so much of what I learned from you over these years is exactly that, to onion peel. And I find it fascinating that the older I get and the more onions I peel, the less smart I feel. And and it it's it's uh it's daunting, but so satisfying at the same time because doors keep opening and and folks keep um, just presenting new knowledge, like Dr. Castelline's work was the first time I've seen somebody in in you know an allopathic cardiovascular uh, institution talk about the functional role of HDL and it was a beautiful thing and so I think to me that's the point of the work you've so amazingly brought to me personally I will speak for myself personally and so many people that I know that that all of us have the ability to see how the world can be peeled because you've done so much work in this space, peeling the onions over and over again with all the different guests and all the lectures you've given that it, it it's uh, pay, we pay homage to you by do, trying to do the same thing to the folks that are younger than us coming up to help them understand that there's more to this situation than a hundred IQ, you know, memorization, the ability, it'd be the ability to regurgitate back information to look like you're capable that's, you know, time has to change. And I, I agree with you a hundred percent. So it's pretty so, clear. So Chris, let, Chris, let me say something, I think, uh, to that. Um, uh, again, I want to pass this back to you in, in honor of what you just said, because you are the personification of everything that I've been trying to communicate for 40 plus years, that um, what's happened is 
we have made it disadvantage, disadvantaged for a person to really think, think creatively in medicine. They're not advantaged, they're disadvantaged. They're advantaged when they can reproduce other people's knowledge and understanding in ways that makes them feel that you've done the job right. That is, it's not creating, it's not synthesizing, it's not innovating. That's for research people. That's not for docs. Docs are supposed to follow standards of practice, usual and customary, and we'll work it out later over time, slow process. Even though knowledge advancing exponentially, the uh, rate at which we can adopt new technologies is gonna be the arithmetic, it's the Methuselah, Methuselahian uh, uh, dialectic or dilemma. Um, and so what you're doing is you're allowing the introduction to the concept that thinking is not disadvantaged, that you still have to have certain things that become fundamental that you are gonna do that don't get people in trouble, but it's not disadvantaged nor is it dangerous to be thinking creatively about how stuff fits together that might allow you to problem solve in those difficult patients that otherwise would be an enigma. And you do that every day by what you do and how you think and how you communicate. And for me, full circle to your first question in this discussion between the two of us was, how did I as a PhD end up in this strange place of giving insight or trying to about medicine? And it was because in my first two years of medical school, my advisor at medical school said to me, Jeff, you're asking way too many questions. You're interrupting the flow. You're creating a disturbance. And, and admittedly, I was young and impetuous. I was 19 years old. And so, yes, I probably wasn't very polite. And I probably was acting out. And I probably wasn't following the covenant appropriately. But what he eventually said to me, he says, where you should put yourself is in the PhD program in the medical school, because they're your value for asking questions. Ask away. So that was my transition. And it was the right recommendation at that time in 1969. That was the right thing to do. That There wasn't an MDA PhD program of that type that I could have bridged the gap. So I think that we are moving in the right direction, thanks to people like you. Well, and and I'll, and I'll say this to tie this with a nice bow. I can't tell you how often now I spend the vast majority of my time seeking out PhDs instead of MDs. And if you had asked me when I left Emory, who would my colleagues that I would mostly turn to to get data points, it wouldn't a PhD wouldn't even been on the on the radar. And now I find myself reaching out to Rick Johnson, reaching out to all these different disparate folks who are doing amazing work with their PhD, some with MDs, but mostly there's this incredible bench research out there that for so long was a differential world. It was separate. It was, yeah, eventually it got to us, but to your point, it was slow, it was slog, it wasn't the way it's supposed to be. And now that that gap has closed to the point that it's actually a very beautiful field to be in now. I The business side of medicine still remains a, a challenge, but the science and the future of medicine is really beautiful. It's almost like a lily about to open, I think. And, and to your point, if we can add AI as a predictive modeling, we actually just started our first clinical intelligence engine this year that we're gonna start now taking all data feeds for our, our 62,000 Medicaid patients across the network and start to start to pre-predict issues. And this is you know infancy of what you're speaking to, 
but it's finally in medicine where we're actually thinking ahead instead of at the end when they're already in the ER and sick and that should never have been the way, but that is the way. And so it's, it's, it's nice. And I don't know if I would have been here, frankly, if it wasn't for the time spent with you and Andy Weil and other folks who were brave enough to fight the headwinds of modern medicine that says, follow a protocol, don't ask the questions. And so with that, I'm going to ask one final question. I'm going to ask you what I ask everybody. And I'll tell you mine while you think of yours, but I'm going to give you a golden ticket and you're going to get to take this ticket to Congress or the President of the United States, and one action will be taken based on your decision. Mine would be straightforward. I want school food changed. I want every single school in this country to serve children whole food that is cooked in a kitchen directly for the children that doesn't have pesticides and chemicals in it to try and at least pull on that one lever that I believe is a major player, all all the withstanding other things that need to be changed as well. But that's the one I want to pull on hard. What would you offer as a golden ticket to Congress or the President of the United States? Well, I think yours is actually part of mine. Um, mine is maybe just a little more grandiose. Um, I want to see the realization of the food as medicine imperative become a policy change across all sectors of government and commerce. That goes down to the farms, that goes down to food processing, that goes to food distribution, that goes down to food economics, that goes down to cafeterias, food delivery, WIC program. I mean, everything that touches food is touched by that concept. If we wow. were to do that, we can transform health in this country in a remarkable way. Yeah, I would I would entirely agree. And um, your macro view would definitely cover my micro view. And uh, I appreciate that. And I, I absolutely love it. Dr. Bland, um, it's an absolute pleasure for me to have spent this hour plus with you. And I can't tell you how grateful I am for all the years of learning that you have offered to us in conference and lecture in webinar in function medicine update CDs of which I still have many downstairs and synthesis <laughs> and all the other ways that I have uh, had the joy of listening to you teach across the across the the waves of air and so for that I want to thank you and I'm going to give you the last word well I want to thank you again and I, I want to acknowledge uh, that word serendipity serendipity because um we're developing a group think. We're developing a universal mind. We're, we're developing an inflection point. And I'm reminded of that earlier today, I had a conversation for the first time with a brilliant female CEO of a company that's raised several hundred millions of dollars to explore the microbiome and its influence on physiological function. And they're doing all sorts of extraordinary, interesting work across many different university academic centers. And in the course of this discussion, she said, you know, we just finished a trial with, I think it was 14,000 people who had total metagenomic analysis done of their microbiome. And we were asking the question, how does their change in their microbiome relate to their biological age? using these age clocks that are now being employed. And she said, you know, it's very interesting what we found. We found that the individuals that had the most disturbed microbiome had the highest initial biological age, and they were the ones on intervention 
that we could show had a reduction in their biological age after something happened to them to improve their microbiome. In the noise of the average, it didn't measure out. But in those individuals who had this, we call it dysbiosis, intervention led to a significant reduction in their biological age. And that was exactly consistent with what we found in our study with an entirely different population, a different hypothesis, and a different intervention. It just shows you there are unifying, unifying themes that we will learn that connect us together to create this paradigm shift. It's a brilliant time that small people in interesting places can change the course of society. That is what I'm banking on. Beautiful. The, the democratization of medicine, the ability to transmit information in such a real-time fashion to so many disparate people is, is I'm grateful to be alive at this time, I have to say. And uh, again, I just want to say thank you. Appreciate you very thank much. You. you be well. Well, there you have it. One of the people I most respect in the world and an amazing conversation. I'm so, again, appreciative of his desire and ability to share his brilliance with the world. So Dr. Bland is now moving into other new spaces. He wrote a fantastic book a few years ago called The Disease Delusion, which I highly encourage everyone to read. Sort of goes through a lot of what we talked about, but in a much more granular and deep scale so you can really get an understanding of what we should be thinking about and how we should be thinking and with regard to to human health in modern America. When I think of the other things great that he's doing in his life, he started a company called Big Bold Health. And the mission is to enhance the immunity at the global level, i.e. giving this information out to the whole world through the rediscovery of ancient food crops and superfoods, stuff that humans have been eating for a long, long time, thousands and thousands of years, but have sort of been lost to us. And the reason being is because some of these foods have incredible immunorejuvenative capacities. And with Big Bold Health, he's actually picked on a few of these already. Tartary buckwheat, Himalayan tartary buckwheat to be specific. And you can get this product that he's now marketing to help your body improve. And I think this is super fascinating. Instead of looking only at pharmaceuticals, which again, in theory, are reductive in how they deal with disease... Let's try and look upstream at what's actually preventing disease by going back and happen, ha, happenstance of trying to retune the immune system so that we don't end up with significant disease. Again, if we are in a disease state and we need medicine, amen, we take it. But what about going upstream to try and reduce the need for medicine by dealing with the immune system's issues or other physiological breakdowns by taking food that has beneficial effects on us? And I think that is part of the legacy that he has placed in the functional medicine movement and has left there for us to grow and learn from. And he's continuing to do his work at age 77. I find him incredibly inspiring. You know, his reality is that he spent his entire career always seeking, always trying, always looking for what can be used in society to help all of us providers, researchers, learners to see a better way, to actually buck against the trend of medicine is the only answer despite your physiological breakdown and actually find ways to go upstream and work at it. So I, I love that part of his 
role in the world. And again, being the lifelong educator that he was and is, he's the father of functional medicine. The first class I ever took in the functional medicine organization was 2008 after I finished my fellowship in Arizona. And I can't tell you how inspiring it was to listen to him speak. Mind-blowing at times, actually. So I'm going to leave it at that. I think the information that needed to be conveyed was done eloquently by Dr. Bland. I encourage you to read The Disease Dilution, Conquering the Causes of Chronic Illness for a Happier, excuse me, for a Healthier, Longer, and Happier Life. And it's got tons of papers out there to read and tons of just incredible information to be given out to the world to sow the seeds of a future that is healthier from an immunologic and biological perspective than it is at the current time for most of us. So with that, as always, hug those kids. Have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat any health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider or patient relationship. Have a great day.